The reading of the scriptures from Acts chapter 25, reading verses 1 to 12, I invite uh, your reverent hearing of God's word and hearing also in faith. From Acts chapter 25. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priest and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept in Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Most of us are uh, quite knowledgeable of the fact that we live in a uh, fallen world. Uh, the corruption uh, seemingly is uh, intense. Uh, all of us, even as Christians, are fallen. And part of God's remedy for the corruption and the fallenness of the world in which we live, and part of God's remedy to restrain evil in the world in which we live is uh, civil and ecclesiastical government. God appoints uh, government to uh, restrain the fallenness of man. Uh, civil government and, of course, church government. Uh, unfortunately, because uh, they are staffed by men, they oftentimes fail too. Sad to say, certainly uh, the failure of church government is uh, quite, quite sad. Uh, and that is why we as Christians have the greatest of all hopes, because we have divine government that never fails. Uh, and when we see everything failing around us, we can have the sure and certain confidence that uh, our governor, the governor of heaven, and the government of heaven uh, will, will not fail and will preserve uh, all its own. So three governments, uh, two are destined to fail, even though we would uh, remember that God calls upon us to pray for civil government, to pray for 
ecclesiastical government, but uh, notwithstanding the failure of men, God is gracious. We have divine government from heaven. Uh, in our case this morning, we're going to look at uh, two forms of government that are going to fail. Uh, Roman government's going to fail, as well as uh, ecclesiastical government's going to fail. Uh, in our case, uh, the Jews accuse Paul of charges they cannot prove, and uh, he appeals to Caesar. The context is uh, the Apostle Paul's uh, second civil trial. Um, the first one was a flop because of the failure of civil government. Uh, if you recall from our lesson uh, last week, uh, Felix did nothing with Paul. And now Felix has been uh, replaced by Festus. Um, let's look at uh, Acts 24, verse 27. But after two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius, Porcius Festus. And wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Um, well, that's a failure in and of itself because uh, Paul is a Roman citizen, had due process. Uh, how can you leave someone you know, two years with doing nothing? Uh, well, because civil government fails, uh, uh, because of favoritism, uh, and so Festus continues the failure of, uh, of Felix wishing to uh, show favoritism uh, to the Jews. Uh, well, let's, let's look at the trial and begin with the ecclesiastical government of uh, Israel, which its failure is quite pronounced. Uh, we know that from uh, the three uh, trials of our Savior. Uh, the analog here in latter chapters of the book of Acts is the three civil trials of Paul. It's going to fail Paul. Uh, but one thing for sure, the divine government will not fail Paul. Uh, the failure of uh, the government of Israel is uh, manifested in their determined and unrelenting pursuit of Paul, including false charges and attempted murder, verses 1-4. to Imagine that. False charges and attempted murder. Both incredible breaches of the Ten Commandments. Uh, the Jews were forbidden uh, to commit murder, and they were forbidden to bear false witness. And so early in this chapter, we're acquainted with the fact that the ecclesiastical government's going to fail. So chief priests and the leading men uh, renew their charges against Paul. Uh, they're persistent in asking that Paul be brought to Jerusalem. Uh, now, why is that? So they can have a fair trial? No, they want to ambush him on the way and kill him. Uh, commit murder. Verse 3. Um, in that regard, it's quite evident at this point that uh, there's uh, mob pressure being placed on civil government. Uh, civil government should be immune to pressure from mobs. Uh, we, we should not be ruled by mob rule. We should be ruled by a civil society, but mob rule is occurring now in Acts chapter 25 because a mob uh, is desperate to kill the Apostle Paul. I would remind you that uh, any society becomes corrupt. 
when civil governors and civil judges become swayed by mobs. Again, the parallel to Jesus is quite palpable. Uh, the mob wants him dead, and so Pilate washes his hands and has him put to death. Again, that is a tragic picture of what happens when a civil governor listens to mob rule. Uh, I would also remind you that uh, divine government uh, engages immediately uh, because when they kill Jesus, God is going to dispatch a civil governor uh, to destroy the nation. Let's turn very quickly in the book of uh, our Old Testament, book of Daniel, uh, Daniel chapter 9. Uh, I'm going to read the last two verses because divine governments can intervene when civil government fails. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. Well, that's the crucifixion. They rejected Messiah. He's crucified upon the cross. He has nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. At that point, their fate is sealed. God's going to come in judgment uh, using a civil governor. He's going to invade Jerusalem and destroy the city. It's a reminder that when civil governors fail, God will not fail to execute judgment. The parallel verse is in verse 27. He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. It's a reminder that the crucifixion ends the entire sacrificial system. He puts an end to all sacrifice. Why is that? Because he's the last great only sacrifice that's accepted by God the Father. The entire sacrificial system of Israel terminates with Jesus. Thank God it does. He's our every hope. So he puts an end to sacrifice. But the judgment, parallel to verse 26, on the eve of abomination will come one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the throne of the one who makes desolate. Uh, this uh, terminal judgment in prophecy was, uh, I believe, fulfilled in 70 A.D. when Titus and his Roman legions breached the city and utterly destroyed it, uh, ransacking the temple. Of course, you and I know that Jews continue to be saved, but uh, not through the portal of Israel. That's over with. Uh, only now through the portal of Jesus who is the new and the greater Israel. Uh, because ethnic Israel failed, and God does not fail, uh, He constitutes His Son as new Israel, and uh, the access to God the Father is now through the single portal of Jesus Christ. In that sense, the nation is no longer the portal. Ceases to be. The new Israel in Christ is. It's very interesting when you look at uh, the failures of ecclesiastical government. Um, I, I gave a historic reference uh, last Sunday to uh, the trial of uh, Martin Luther 
Luther, as you know, uh, is an Augustinian uh, priest. Uh, he becomes very re- uh, vexed by uh, the failure of uh, uh, the religious government as his day. Uh, finally, uh, an emissary of Rome by the name of Tetzel comes to town, uh, and he's collecting money to refurbish Rome. And basically his contract is, uh, you give to me, uh, I'll get your loved ones out of purgatory. And that really vexed Luther because he knew it was a lie. You can't buy someone out of judgment. In fact, uh, there is no purgatory. In Rome, uh, Roman religion there is. Uh, not in the Orthodox Christian faith. But he was promising, uh, you know, you... You know, you give me your coin and I'll get your loved ones out of purgatory. They'll fly into eternity. Uh, and so uh, Luther in 1517 posts his 95 theses uh, on the church door of Wittenberg. Wittenberg, more properly, uh, German, is really the uh, bulletin board of the day. You want to get something out, you put it on the bulletin board of the church, which was the church door. And that puts him in a collision course with Rome. And so uh, Luther uh, is uh, mandated to appear before the Curia, uh, Roman, uh, pardon me, uh, uh, the civil papal court. Again, died of worms. Uh, Luther refuses to recant. He's condemned because Rome wants him dead. Just like they want the Apostle Paul dead. If you have occasion to study and uh, you're studying the uh, uh, history of the church, there's always martyrdom as darkness tries to kill the light. Uh, on his uh, way out of uh, Wittenberg, uh, Prince Frederick abducts uh, Luther and takes him to uh, Wartburg Castle, uh, where there Luther begins to write. Uh, to expand uh, the understanding of the faith. Uh, We are uh, heirs of that in terms of Luther's understanding of the doctrine of justification uh, and the priesthood of every believer. Radical thought, even for uh, American Christianity today. Uh, There are some denominations, as you know, that have special priests. Uh, In the Reformed Church, all of us are priests. Um, Part of the genius uh, comes to us, the heritage of Martin Luther, the priesthood of every believer. One of the reasons I love that doctrine is because we live in a culture in which everything seemingly is meaningless. We are not meaningless. We're the priests of God. He's ordained us in a new birth as the priests of God. Now, by the way, if you, uh, if you understand properly uh, Luther's uh, view of the priesthood of every believer and his doctrine of justification, it vitiates the entire Roman Catholic sacramental system because there's no need for it. We have the grace of God in Jesus Christ. In Rome, the church dispenses sacraments, which dispenses grace. 
We believe that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit dispense grace. And we get all of it through His Son. Again, the marvels that come to us uh, by uh, the Reformation. It's also very interesting that uh, Luther believed, and I think rightly so, that the Pope had no authority over civil government. Uh, And that was a radical thought. Rome did not like that at all. But Luther's view prevailed. That's one of the reasons today we have a separation between church and state. It really stems in part from Martin Luther. Uh, The Pope has no authority over civil governors. Uh, Ecclesiastical courts have no authority over civil courts because they're two different courts. Uh, But tragically, uh, as the ecclesiastical uh, government of uh, Israel failed, in their treatment of the Apostle Paul, we're reminded that there's great moral failure in the life of the church today. Uh, and it, it, it encompasses every church, sometimes touched with the sadness of moral failure. Um, the treatment of children. Just goes on and on. How can it be? Because of the failure of men and the failure of ecclesiastical government. I once read an account of uh, uh, one of the particular fails of Rome. And again, it touches every church. I'm not throwing rocks at any particular church. Mindful of our own failures, of course. Uh, Reference the Lavender Mafia and a bishop entertaining seminary students at a beach home. It's just almost too much to take. How can that be in a professing Christian church? Uh, Because men fail. And ecclesiastical governments fail. And that's why when they fail, our ultimate hope is divine government that never fails. Never fails. Is pure and holy. And that government, if you will, has enveloped us in the new birth, at the dispatch of the Spirit to make us holy and blameless. A reminder uh, to be oh so careful in life because all of us are still fallen. Uh, but God is still gracious. Um, I might uh, talk very briefly about ecclesiastical government at Grace Bible Church. Uh, reminded of the famous saying by Lord uh, Acton. We're all quite familiar with it. Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. At Grace Bible Church, our power and authority is uh, derived from Christ the great King. It's a derivative. And that's why we should be oh so careful because we're to protect His authority and honor His authority. Uh, 19th century uh, Anglican theologian by the name of J.C. Ryle uh, utters those famous words, the best of men are men at best. Uh, And in the famous hymn by Robinson, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Reminder 
that we, we too are part of this fallen world. And we're in desperate need of the grace of God and the government of heaven to prevail over us. Uh, and the government of heaven uh, is benevolent towards us in every way, merciful and compassionate and gracious. Uh, elders, as you know, are, uh, are to rule uh, with uh, the word of God as their ultimate and final authority. That's our government. Their, their character is to manifest that they are ruled by the word of God. They're not above it. They're not on it. They are under it because it rules them too. Again, derivative authority of the elders of the church. That elders are to represent and to follow the word of God. And they're to mirror heaven. Uh, they also mirror heaven in church discipline. Uh, which uh, in ecclesiastical court is to uh, govern and protect the church in holiness. And when the church uh, disregards discipline, as it oftentimes does in our culture, the church begins to look like the world. And we're not supposed to look like the world. We're to mirror heaven, not the world. It's one of the reasons I believe that church membership is another decline in America. I think the world is saying, well, if you look like the world, why should I go to your church? What's different about you that's uh, found everywhere in our culture? That's why we give great attention to the government of heaven. Uh, because we're not to look like the world. We're to mirror the glories of heaven. The grace of God. But again, it's a reminder that when ecclesiastical government fails, our ultimate hope is in the government of our benevolent Savior that will never fail us. And uh, I might ask that, uh, that you would be gracious towards our church and pray uh, for our government here, that God would preserve and protect us. Uh, because we are fallen too, and we are immune from nothing because of our fallenness. Well, another venue in which God restrains evil uh, on our fallen world beyond ecclesiastical government is civil government. It's to restrain evil. It's not to promote evil. It's to restrain it. One of the constituted duties of proper civil government. But as you know, verses 5 to 12, uh, civil government is corrupt in the days of the Apostle Paul. Festus sets a court date in Caesarea. The prosecutors are instructed to bring their charges, verse 5. Uh, on the appointed date, he takes his seat in the tribunal uh, of the magistrate and uh, uh, we read that they bring many serious uh, charges. Verse 7. Literally, the Greek text is quite beautiful here. Um, it's properly translated uh, serious charges, but the text is literally, they bring many heavy charges. Weighty charges. But Luke states that they are unable to prove them. They cannot prove their charges against the Apostle Paul. Uh, 
Uh, Paul uh, makes his defense. Uh, verse 8, literally he states, uh, I did not sin against the law, the temple, or against Caesar. The word sin, as you know, is oftentimes defined as missing the mark. Paul says, I didn't miss the mark. Uh, so essentially, Paul is pleading not guilty to the ecclesiastical as well as the civil charges against him. Uh, technically, I believe Char uh, uh, Festus should have released the Apostle Paul. Uh, I know very little about courts, but uh, I think when the charges can't be proved, uh, what little I know is uh, the judge says, well, uh, you're not guilty, so release him. Paul should have been released. He's not released. Why is that? Because of a corrupt civil government. Uh, Festus wishing, in the text literally reads, to lay down grace to the Jews. Uh, keeps the trial going. Again, that's favoritism. Uh, I do not know much about the ethical charges of a judge, uh, but what little I do know is that they should not show favoritism. I mean, the great statue of justice, justice is blind, treats all the same. The rule of law, critical to civil government. But the Roman governor fails out of favoritism. He's going to bend to mob rule. I think in a way he tries to trick Paul. Where would you like to go to Jerusalem? <laughs> well, uh, why go there since their court is corrupt too? Paul appeals to go to Rome. Uh, Caesar's his judge because he was a Roman citizen. Uh, I suspect Paul knew going to Rome was going to be a place of extreme danger even though Paul knew he was going to go to Rome to witness. So he rejects the offer appeals to the higher court of Caesar. Uh, so both court systems violate justice. Um, ecclesiastical government fails in injustice. They bear false witness and want to commit murder. The civil government fails by showing favoritism. Uh, bowing to mob rule. My, my friends, you cannot, proper civil government, bow to mob rule. Uh, you, you bow to the rule of law. Uh, when you efface the rule of law, uh, you're inviting chaos as civil governors. But again, our hope is what? Our ultimate hope. You and I live in a fallen world. We know court systems fail. Uh, the best of court systems fail. Nothing's perfect. Uh, but our governor in heaven never fails. Our ultimate hope must be there. When chaos seemingly is always abounding, our ultimate hope is that God is ruling and sitting upon His throne. And He does not fail. Never fails. Protect His own. Uh, while not stated again in this text, uh, we know that Paul has safe passage. Let's turn very quickly uh, to Acts 23 and verse 11. Acts 
But on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause in Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. Uh, another reason that Paul begs off going to Jerusalem and goes to Rome. And he's going to get there. Uh, even though there's many hurdles along the way, he's going to get to Rome. Uh, it's it's uh, the acknowledgement that his hope is in divine government uh, that will do with him as he wills. Uh, the Apostle Paul knows that divine government will not fail him. Uh, listen to his words in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 18. The Lord will deliver me from every evil deed and bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. That's our hope. Court systems will fail us. The divine court will not fail us. Paul is going to be delivered to the heavenly kingdom. It's a promise based upon the government of heaven. And, and again, I certainly remind you, the best of men make promises. <laughs> Many of which they intend to keep, but sometimes they do not. And sometimes it breaks hearts and causes hurt and chaos. The promises of God never fail. The promises of God cannot be denied. We should cherish them because they are our ultimate hope in a fallen world. Uh, let's, let's expand on that. The beauty of what it means by turning to Psalm uh, 103. Psalm 103. I'm going to read verses uh, 2 to 6. Bless the Lord on my soul and forget none of His benefits who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. Divine government. Providing for all who belong to it. It, it, I mean, it's really kind of compelling reason to turn to the Savior, is it not? To be crowned with God's loyal love and compassion. To be granted safe travel to heaven. I mean, when you recoil and turn away from the failure of ecclesiastical and civil government, you turn to heavenly government. And what a benevolent government it is, described by the psalmist, Psalm 103. The oppressed can find comfort there. A sure comfort, to be sure. It's a great reminder. Uh, if you know not the Savior, Jesus Christ, to turn to Him. The governor of heaven, if you will, who is always gracious to his people, will always rescue them and forgets none in their journey to heaven. 
So you and I are subject to these courts uh, as they govern in their respective realms, but uh, both are appointed by God, uh, but he is Lord of both and subject to neither because he's the true ultimate sovereign. Uh, we pray for our respective rulers. I trust you pray for the elders. We should pray for our civil government, that God would use them to their constituted role to restrain evil, not to show favoritism or become subject to mobs. Uh, but we know now, like the Apostle Paul, that courts fail. Therefore, our ultimate hope is God. And his court is to be honored and revealed because all will give account to him. And he will vindicate all who belong to him. Let's look at this court, Second uh, Corinthians chapter five and verse ten. It's the last great final court. When God shuts down every religious and civil court, there is one court that all men must face, namely His. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse ten. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Uh, the context is the Apostle Paul is uh, motivating the church to please God in light of the coming resurrection and because all must appear before him. It's a great motivation, isn't it, to do what's right? Not to bear false witness? Not to murder, uh, not to give way to mob rule, but because we would give an account to God. I mean, that's a restraining influence if there ever was one. But that's the, the glory of the court of heaven, to restrain evil. Uh, it's very easy to interpret this text as uh, reward based on works. Uh, it's not reward based on works. Rather, it's an examination in which some are found to be true and some false. Uh, the ones who are found to be true uh, will remain and the ones false taken away in judgment. The ultimate court. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, I would remind you in the grace of God that you and I will appear before that court. Redeemed by Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians chapter four, verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. That's how we will stand before this ultimate court. Having been renewed by God in regeneration and sanctification. It is really the reality that God will vindicate us on that day when he sifts out all the pretenders and all the false and all the liars and they're taken away in judgment. It's a court that will not fail. I mean, if you're not a Christian, this is really kind of a terrifying text uh, because you cannot withstand the infinite judgment of God who knows all things you will be found wanting. The only way that you will not be found wanting is to be found in His Son, the beloved Jesus Christ, who, uh, who regenerates you and makes you new. 
And if you're a Christian, He is renewing you even this day to His praise so that we can stand before that court uh, not guilty. And we're not guilty even now because of the doctrine of justification. And that's, that's one of the greatest blessings of being a Christian. Uh, you and I know that we're not innocent. But because of Christ, we're declared not guilty. And because we are beloved in Him, heaven is pleased and accepts us as righteous in His sight because of the work of the Savior. Our hope again as Christians is that He was judged for us. Uh, it's really the compelling uh, message I think of this text is uh, when all these governments fail, there's still a divine court. Uh, but all who are in Christ are safe. will be set free to the upland glorious joy and light of eternity in heaven and all the rest taken in judgment. A compelling reason to turn to the court of heaven through Jesus Christ. So that our ultimate hope, when everything else is failing, is of course in Him. Uh, and what it means to us today and will mean to us in heaven. Uh, let's turn in our Old Testaments, if you would, to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, I'd like to look at uh, our governor in heaven. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Uh, the context is a messianic hope. Jesus is the Messiah. What does that mean? For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. The grace of God. God gives us the beloved son. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Committed to the zeal of God, the commander of all armies and navies and air forces, that's what it, the Lord of hosts is, will accomplish uh, this divine government resting upon the shoulders of the divine messianic king. Who, by the way, if you know him, you are his son forever. He's a wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace. Eternal father. Not that he's the father, but he's an eternal provider for his children. As fathers love their children and strive and work so hard to provide for them, our Savior, our Messianic King, is like an eternal Father who provides everything for His children. So again, the context is Messianic and the hope of a remnant. I trust you're a member of that remnant. I trust that your hope has... Uh, gone from ecclesiastical government to civil government to divine government and the great King Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. To turn to Him 
to know Him as your ultimate hope. The beauty of it doesn't end there. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 11, verses 6 to 9. Because our Savior will place us in a renewed Edenic garden. Let's read about that garden that you and I will enter. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze, and their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like an ox, and the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt to destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So that the dominion lost by the first Adam will be totally, finally, and irrevocably recovered by the last Adam, our Messianic King, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a picture of His government in which He will remove all danger, all threats, all agony of soul, removed Forever. Now that's a reason to turn to divine government and place your every hope, every aspiration, every joy, every desire there. Men will fail you. Heaven will not. And we will live in perpetual peace, world without end.